Um, so tonight I'm going to move our attention to, uh, to a topic other than Halloween, but I will end with a Halloween sort of story so that you'll get a little bit back at the end. Um, Thomas Merton has a wonderful quote that I know many of you have heard, and it's, um, it's really a helpful quote. And he said, there's a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. To allow oneself to be carried away by the multitude of conflicting concerns, to, to, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many people, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. This quote of his, Thomas Merton, most of you know, is a Christian mystic, and um, he said it 40 years ago. So that means he said it before the internet, before email, before blogs, before uh, 500 cable stations, before cell phones, before instant messaging, Blackberries, texting, iPhones, and so on. So we're going to explore tonight. Um, the topic of my talk is taking care of myself. I take care of the world. And this talk is, is to help us look at how what we do sitting here on the cushion and leading a life that's sane in this culture is also in service to the world. And it's... Some of you may be particularly engaged with activism or service. Some of you, a lot of you are in the health field. Um, so some of, some of it may feel relevant in that way, but really it's for any of us, whatever level that we're serving, whether it's serving in our families, whether it's, um, it's just the act of living a life in these times. So I just want to say that it's so good that you are here. It's so good you're here in this crazy, sped-up world that we live in. I know it's hard to believe because you've all been so quiet now, but <laughs> just you know what you're heading back to, right? You have another day, so don't let your mind go too far. So many people I encounter, people come on the retreat in the very beginning and they're struggling with being burnt out, with being overly busy, exhausted, guilty, angry, resentful, and even physically ill because of you know, their lifestyle. From the crazy pace of the world, the financial concerns, the stress, the lack of a safety net in the United States. From life situations, people are caring for dying or aging parents. People have children with um, difficult problems they're dealing with. People are dealing with debt with work overwhelm, with um, some of us are working in organizations where we're underfunded and overworked. We, um, we know that in this country, we, uh, we have the lowest number of vacations in the entire developed world, vacation days in the entire developed world. So the average people take about 12 days of vacation um, compared to five or six weeks in Europe. And as you've probably heard, people are not even taking their 12 days. And when they do take their 12 days, they take their Blackberries or iPhones with them. So then they're really not taking their vacations. But it's not just here in the United States. Some of you may know that um, 
the Japanese recently introduced a word into their vocabulary called karoshi, which means death by overwork. Yeah, serious. And I have this little picture of this, um, what's supposed to be a medieval peasant, and it's a poster for taking back your time, and it says, medieval peasants worked less than you do. (laughs) Pretty scary. So on one hand, this is just the situation of living life in this modern culture in these days. And some of you have managed to have more sanity and ease in your life, and others get really overwhelmed. And some of us feel this constant sense of needing to serve, to help, to take care, whether it's our personal life or whether it's to address the suffering of the world. And some of that comes, if you begin to look at the thought processes behind that, you'll see that many of us feel that the suffering on the planet in these times is so great. It's hard to be alive with what's going on right now. It's scary, it's depressing, it's overwhelming. And so we may feel compassion, but there may be an extreme sense of compassion. Someone talked about the compassion that hurts. It hurts when you really check in to what's going on. And we have varying degrees of equanimity, varying degrees of an ability to stay with it, to be with it as it is. Some of us are very caught in the identity of being the one who helps or the one who serves. So there's a sense of self congealing around, I'm the one who has to take care. I'm the one who in my family takes care of everyone, or I'm the one who has to solve, you know, the AIDS crisis or and world hunger, and um, you know that feeling? Some of you have. And some of us struggle with incredible guilt. The sense of, I shouldn't live with this privilege when other people don't. And I've always had this vision of of anybody who felt a lot of guilt, um, especially activists who carry a lot of guilt about needing to change the world, um, to just have this giant bonfire where we throw all the guilt into the bonfire and just send it up into the away, get rid of it for once and for all. Sometimes we're motivated to serve because we feel like um, no one can do it as good as I can. That sense, oh, I can't let somebody else take it on because they can't do it like me. Sometimes we're driven by perfectionism by self-criticism, self-hatred, secret messianic complexes, um, the sense that I can never do enough, it's up to me to solve everything. But the truth is that when we act from this place of being driven by these fears and desires uh, uh, to sort of, we're, we're not checked into the real reasons, we, um, we can't serve in a fully, in a way that heals the planet because we end up driving ourselves deeper and deeper into more suffering. And we can't live our lives purpose when we're driven by fear and exhaustion and overwhelm. So one of the inspirational things that Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master and poet and teacher to many of us taught, was about being peace. That we need to embody the change that we want to see in the world. 
that if we're trying to solve the world's problems, but we're running around frenetically the way Thomas Merton talked about, trying to solve everything, caught in um, fear and overwhelm and thinking we have to save everything, then we're not living peace. And that the, in his view, and in the view of many of us, the ends and the means are linked. How do we work for change in our lives and in the world by maintaining the peace, by holding peace when you want the end to be peace? And some of you are familiar with certain activist organizations, for instance, that they're, try- they're, they're working really hard for peace by screaming at everybody and trying to... Um, there can be quite a lot of violence, you see, in these communities. Um, this is a quote from Miles Horton, who was the founder of, um, of the Highlander School in Tennessee. And the Highlander School is where many of the civil rights activists were trained, including Rosa Parks. He's, he, um, he was a tremendously powerful teacher and over the years taught people nonviolent resistance and all sorts of actions to come from this place of peace. And this is what he said. He said, it's important to understand that the quality of the process used to get to a place determines the ends. So when you want to build a democratic society, you have to act democratically in every way. If you want love and brotherhood, you've got to incorporate them as you go along, because you can't just expect them to occur in the future without experiencing them before you get there. A long-range goal to me is a direction that grows out of loving people and caring for people. So it makes sense that what we're doing here to care for ourselves and also to develop qualities of the heart and mind is going to have a huge impact on everyone we touch and everything we touch. So we work on ourselves in here and it impacts our relationships, and that impacts the communities that we're in, and it impacts the, the neighborhoods and the organizations, the institutions. And there's this sense of that we're all related, that what you're doing here on this cushion is not separate in any way from, what, um, from its impact on the world. So when Buddhist practice gets a bad rap that it's navel-gazing, and you're just sitting here dealing with yourself, It's just so not true. I mean, you know, for those of you who've been sitting a long time, you know what an impact your practice has made on your life, on your relationships, on your job. So as we sit, we develop these qualities of heart and mind. We develop the equanimity. We develop patience. My God, we've been developing patience all week, haven't we? Yeah. We develop uh, insight and wisdom and compassion, and we learn that skill of how much does our heart open, and how much do we know when to say things are as they are. May I accept things just as they are, without cutting off the compassion. And so the work on the cushion is a training ground. It's really a training ground for being out in the world, although it also is an end unto itself, of course. And some of you may say, I'm actually not really drawn to serve. That being, that my practice, deepening my practice, is the most important thing I can possibly do right now. 
there's an incredible story in the Buddhist teachings about a, this. Well, it's not in the Buddhist teachings. It's a story from Buddhist history about a king Ashoka, who was this this violent king who conquered essentially all of what's now India, and he was supposed to have just been absolutely. Uh, he just he, there were no bounds to his cruelty essentially, and one day there was a bloody battle and. He was standing on the battlefield as the story, as the legend goes. And this monk walked across the field in walking meditation and just walked. And in that moment, this cruel king's heart completely changed. And he laid down his swords and his plans for more conquering. And he devoted his life to practice and to ruling from a place of the Dharma. And so he's known as the first dharmic king in all of you know, human history. And he did incredible things. He, uh, he was started veterinar- the first veterinarian clinics in all <laughs> that, that ever, um, that they know of in history. He, start- he stopped capital punishment. He brought in all of the principles of the dharma, the ethics, the sila, and incorporated it on a social level. And so it's an incredible model to see how he was so touched by the heart of one monk practicing. So we never know what the impact of our practice is. We never know. And we never know um, what will be changed. My favorite, my favorite, well, one of, my fa- one of my favorite things in all of the Dharma is the concept of the Bodhisattva. And many of you are familiar with this, but the Bodhisattva is a being whose life is dedicated to awakening for the sake of all beings. And so it's a being who, it's Bodhisattva stands for Bodhi, Bodhi is awakened and Sattva is being, so awakened being. But it's a, it's, it's a historical figure in Buddhism. It's a It's also an archetypal energy of service and compassion and wisdom. And I also think it's quite real. And I also think it's us. That we can make a choice to say, my practice is for the benefit of all beings. So this being is, is, the being has a commitment to wake up with others, to commit to, well, let's put it this way. If you want to be a bodhisattva, your practice could commit to what you love, to the ending of suffering, to awaken with all beings, to live a life of wisdom and compassion, to live a fearless life. This is the Bodhisattva's vow, to live, to use everything the Bodhisattva encounters in the spirit of wisdom and compassion for more and more and more awakening. And we can be this, we can take it on, not in some grandiose sense, but just in the sense simply of my practice and my, my inner life and my outer life, they're not separate. They never have been, they never will be. As I work on myself, I awaken to all that's happening in the world. And we can make vows, we can make commitments in our practice. And many of you have made commitments on this retreat. My favorite one comes from Shanti Deva, and he says, For as long as space exists, 
and sentient beings endure. May I be the living ground of love for all beings. And this can be our own. It doesn't have to be some body in history's vow. We can find what we resonate with, what takes our practice and gives us juice and excitement and connection and turns it into a living practice. This is the heart of the bodhisattva. But what we have to remember, and this is going back to the beginning, so the bodhisattva is this incredible outward energy of wanting to serve, wanting to serve. But also remember that the bodhisattva is not codependent. Okay? <laughs> the bodhisattva isn't, isn't um, trying to, to take care of everybody at the expense of himself or herself. And so what we see is that if you can really begin to look at the stories of people who do great bodhisattva actions throughout history, that they're always taking time for themselves. That this, this practice that you're doing, whether it's this practice and many other people in other traditions, you might say Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama, or you know, we could name these exalted beings. Although I think you can also name really ordinary beings who have these qualities. But they take time for inner practice. And if you think about the Buddha's life, so the Buddha did all this practice to get enlightened, and Nishka talked about um, the kind of early part of his life. But when he taught, he spent 45 years teaching the Dharma, and he spent three months out of every single one of those years in retreat. It wasn't like he was just constantly spewing out the Dharma. He was, he was going inward. And even, even the Buddha, even someone who had this incredible level of enlightenment needed time to go inward. If you read some of the uh, biography of Thich Nhat Hanh, you'll see that there were years when, and though he was really fighting for um, his people in, Viet, in Vietnam, he would, he would go into periods of solitude and seclusion to regather, to write, to reflect. And there's an incredible story about this from Gandhi, about Gandhi. It's the winter of 1929 to 1930 in India, and there's tension in the air. The independence movement is in some disarray. Among the leaders of the Congress party, including Gandhi, there's a lack of unity and clarity about tactics. There have been conflicts between Hindus and Muslims, as well as terrorist attacks on British officials. And so um, Tagore, the great Bengali poet, visits Gandhi at his rural ashram and asks him what direction should be followed. So they're in the midst of this Indian independence movement, and they're kind of, they're just really stuck. But they're moving forward. I mean, it's really, it's quite amazing what, what's been going on in India up until this time. But Gandhi says, I do not see any light coming out of the surrounding darkness. There's a lot of violence in the air. So instead of moving forward with another strategy or tactic, he just stays in his ashram. And he, he practices. He does his practices. And he does this, and he prays, and he meditates for hours, and apparently sits on the veranda of his house just reflecting and thinking. And he says, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the call. I know that I will hear the inner voice. At the end of some six weeks of such waiting and not knowing, he finally knows. 
he will lead a salt march from the ashram to the sea and make salt, which is against the colonial law, guaranteeing a British monopoly on making salt. So for those of you who are familiar with Gandhi's story, you know that the salt march is one of the great turning points in the movement to quit India. Um, and so, you know, hundreds and thousands of people marched to the sea to take back the means of making salt. This didn't come from strategy and figuring out and thinking about it. It came from a deep inner exploration, withdrawal, connection. It's surprising, because you would think that you're kind of in the movement and you keep going, but actually he went inward. And so many of us have these cycles in our lives, in our practice, of course not as necessarily illustrious as Gandhi, of course, but where we, go, we know that it's time to go inward, that we've been out, we've been serving, serving, working, dealing with family, job, responsibilities, and this voice in our head says, okay, it's time to go inward. And I know that I remember after years of working at a nonprofit, I spent about eight years working at a nonprofit, and then I left. The first thing I did was went straight into a retreat and spent a month doing metta practice just for me. Not for anybody else, just for me, because I needed it. And it was so helpful. It was so healing. And then there were other periods I know in my life where I, was, I spent some time living in a monastery in Burma. And I spent the year practicing, practicing, practicing. And it was a profoundly important time in my spiritual journey to do this. And one day I just started to have this feeling like there's, I need to be out there in the world. I think I'm kind of done. And I started thinking about the suffering and the planet and what would be my place and where could I serve, in what way. And it was very clear that it became time to leave the monastery. So all of us have these cycles of inner and outer, and I really encourage that in you as you cultivate these inner states to to notice when it's time to pay attention to going inward, is it time to go outward, and a lot of it depends on paying attention to your intuition, to really checking in with yourself what's right, to divorce yourself from the shoulds about who you're supposed to be, and, um, and check in with you. just want to put in a plug for living a life of um, living a life of sanity in this busy world. So people have been asking, there's actually been quite a few interviews where people would say, I feel too overwhelmed, I feel too responsible, too busy, what can I do? And I just want to give a couple of points that I thought was helpful. So we've got to prioritize taking care of ourselves in our life. If we don't prioritize it, it just doesn't happen. And for some of us, that actually means scheduling it, like taking out your calendar and just making a big X through a day or an afternoon and say, this is my time. One of my uh, friends, she calls it her sacred space. So nothing can, can violate it. She just puts it in her calendar, it's there. And this is what you know, humans have done throughout time in all these religious traditions, the tradition of the Sabbath, taking time for yourself, coming to retreat, so helpful when we get caught in the frenzy that Merton was referring to. And then also, not just retreat and solitude time, but time of play. 
times for joy, for celebration, for ritual, for community and connection. We can't sustain the work that we do and the life that we lead if there isn't time for play. This is a suggestion from um, the same people that gave me the medieval uh, peasant one. They say, adult playground rules. No laptop or cell phone use allowed. No worrying about deadlines. No business suits allowed. No business meetings. Take back your time because recess isn't only for kids. (laughs) So, so, um, So the invitation is to prioritize that aspect of our life. Another thing to remember is you don't have to do everything. You don't have to do everything. There's that little voice in our head, we can really feel it. You probably noticed it at times here, the sense of, I have to, I have to do this. And it just really propels us into the next thing. So using the mindfulness practice to check into that voice that's sending us forward, propelling us into the next thing, you don't have to do everything. You can sometimes not do things, and life goes on. Life goes on. It really does. Sometimes it's useful to ask for help. This one's really hard for those of us who take everything on, asking for help. But it's a possibility. It's also something I've been working with is kind of changing my attitude about things. So I noticed that I was creating a lot of dukkha for myself by um, this feeling that would come over me that said, there's too much to do, there's too much to do, I don't have enough time. And I would feel it, oops, I would feel it in my throat and in my chest, the sense there's, too, there's not enough time. And I would feel kind of almost frantic about it. And so I've been working with, when I notice that feeling of frantic, there's not enough time, of actually um, using that as a mindfulness bell to remind me to come back to myself. And, to, and I sometimes use other words, other language, kind of these metaphrases of there's all the time in the world. There's enough time. It will get done. It will get done. And it's been such a healing practice, really, to just change it. And then what's happening is I still have the same amount of stuff to do, but I'm not operating from that place of fear and anxiety about it. It's just coming from, oh, okay, there's there's a lot to do, but there's more than enough time. And finally, when working with this, this sense of um, it's all practice, that even when we're in the midst of the difficulty and the, you know, you have a crying child and you have 40 phone calls and bills to pay and your mother's ill and you're dealing with all this stuff, that this is the stuff of life arising in the space of presence. That we can be connected to that deeper knowing, that sense of being in mindfulness and presence And everything is just happening. Just like today when Jack was having you do that meditation, that big spacious meditation where your mind was big enough and yet everything was happening in it. So if you can remember that from time to time when you're out there in the world and too much is going on, to just settle back and connect into yourself 
and let the activity emerge from the presence. It's not always easy, but it's quite extraordinary when we tap into it. So the more we take care of ourselves and see how vital the practice of taking care of ourselves is to the healing of the world, the more naturally arises a sense of wanting to serve. And there's, this, there, there's something I've noticed where, um, particularly in certain activist circles, where there's a sense like, this kind, of pra- this kind of activism is better than this kind of activism. So writing letters, that's okay, but civil disobedience, that's much better. Or change in institution is really good, but just, um, I don't know, uh, serving the poor and the hungry, that's not good or something. Um, but when, one of the things that's been really helpful for me has been working with Joanna Macy, who many of you know. And she's a wonderful uh, Buddhist practitioner and eco-philosopher and writer and teacher around engaged Buddhism. And she recommends that, she, well, she talks about that the transformation of our world and how we can each play a role in it. And she talks about the different ways, and there's so many different ways, and she breaks it down to three different ways. One she calls, she calls holding actions. And holding actions is um, work that's done to prevent further harm. So that might be protests, political or legislative work. It might be civil disobedience you'd put in this category. Anything that kind of stops the stream from going forward. And she says that's one thing, but there are other things that are helpful too. And another, her second one is uh, creating alternative institutions. So when we develop, um, when we're connected with or part of, for instance, community-supported agriculture or alternative currencies or microfinancing would be in this category or bringing mindfulness out into the medical communities or anything that creates new institutions and changes, uh, changes our institutions from the inside out. This is a second approach. And the third approach is the approach which she calls changing hearts and minds. And that could be really anything in a certain way. It could be being a teacher, working with children. It could be being a yoga teacher. It could be being, it could be being an artist. It could be, either, like anything can fall under that category where your work has an impact on changing values, changing hearts and minds. I love this because it reminds me I don't have to do everything. And what I can do is find where am I most suited to work? Where is my place to serve in the world? One of my friends got very interested in the Bodhisattva vow, and he decided he wanted to take it on. But as he started reflecting reflecting about taking on the Bodhisattva vow, he realized that um, it just seemed a little too much. I'm going to save every single sentient being, including all the bugs. Are you kidding me? And so he's thinking about it. He's getting more and more panicked about it. And suddenly he realized, wait a minute. I've taken the Bodhisattva vow, but so has that person, and so has that person, and that person, and that person. Suddenly it became this huge community of Bodhisattvas. And so if we do this work, we're not alone. And we can see the ways our work connects with other people's work. 
We create a web of healing and connection that weaves all of our expressions together, connected into our own basic goodness and the manifestation of it in the world in the form that's appropriate for you. And this is really, really key. Serving from a place of being burnt out, of being overwhelmed, of being exhausted, of being sick, doesn't help anybody. I'll tell you that. It really doesn't. One of my really good friends once said to me at a time when I was very, very um, burned out, and he said, and I was just doing too much. I was too much in my life, too many. Everything I did, was I was loving it, but it was just too much, and I was feeling exhausted and getting sick. And he said, imagine that your life is like this big bathtub. And what if that bathtub were overflowing? And that the service, the work in the world, everything you were doing was coming from this place of feeling overflowing, that it wasn't effort, but it was just this natural expansion. And I just loved that idea so much. And the person who said that to me was uh, sitting right there, Mr. Temple Smith. (laughs) It was so helpful to me. The Samadhi cowboy, what was that? (laughs) I don't remember. And so we can find our expression in the world that is not coming from burnout and fear and exhaustion and neuroses. I mean, sometimes, and we talked about this before, the motivation can be mixed. Of course, our motivation is mixed at times. But it can be coming from um, a natural goodness inside ourselves that just feels inspired to serve. It wants to serve or it wants to alleviate the suffering in one's family, in one's home life, whatever it is. And we can come from that place. And it's so important that we enjoy what we do, that we're not doing what we do because we've been told we have to do it, that we should do it, that somebody thinks that's the way that it's good for us to do it. We need to enjoy it. That's the best kind of service. When you see someone just loving what they do, you feel it. I know this is a kind of a funny example, but do you ever listen to um, car talk? (laughs) Don't you have the sense that these guys are ecstatically happy? They just love what they do. um, They're helping a lot of people (laughs) with their cars. (laughs) But their expression in life, it's so peculiar, but it's so uniquely them. And in some ways, it's, it's up to each of us to find that place where we can serve in a way that's pure joy. And we can sometimes transform situations where it's not that way through the power of mindfulness. I remember, um, this was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I was working with at a shelter for homeless, uh, well, for people who had either homeless or didn't have health care and... Um, I was, I was visiting a woman. She wasn't homeless. She was in her home. And I would go visit her and kind of hang out with her. And that was kind of my service. I was going to hang out with her. And her house was not very pleasant to be at. It was filled with 
a lot of cigarette smoke. So she was kind of chain smoking and I didn't like cigarettes and it was dirty and cramped and she was unhappy and she, her, her body was in a lot of pain and it was just very unpleasant for me to go there. But I went because I thought I should. I went because I was trying to serve. I was trying to take care of her that I had this thing like, oh, she really needed my help. And so I would go there and I would sit in the, in the room with her and I would just get really, really sleepy. So you know that drowsiness that some of you got in the very first days, that would just overtake me. And I'd be sitting there like, oh, I can't hold, I can't even stay awake. Or then I would get restless or then I'd get annoyed. I'd start getting aversive. Oh, I hate the cigarette smoke. I hate this place. But I was serving. <laughs> I was being such a good girl. And... Um, so one day, at a certain point, I had this revelation that this was not helping anybody. It really wasn't. And so I said, well, what would it be like to bring my mindfulness practice to this moment, to her? What if she were like the breath? That my present time awareness, that my connection to her was the breath, was like the breath. And every time my mind would go off and get bored or sleepy, oh, that's just a hindrance. Oh, there's sleepiness. Notice the sleepiness, feel it in my body, let it go. Gently return my attention back to her. Oh, there's aversion. Wow, this, this place is so stinky. I hate it. It's okay. Oh, aversion. Hey, aversion. Oh, okay, come back to her. Restlessness. Restless. Body achy. Want to get out of here. Back to her. And I did this over a period of a couple of times. And what happened was the whole field transformed. It was suddenly I could be there. She felt my presence. We started to laugh a lot. We felt connected. She felt seen. I felt it, it wasn't about helping at all. It was about just being there in presence with another human being. So we can transform situations that are difficult, absolutely. And the encouragement is the best we can to find ways to serve and work in the world, whether it's service work or meaningful work for ourselves, that really make us excited, happy, joyful. Dharma practice isn't dreary. You know, sometimes it can feel a little oh, dull or a little boring or something, but it's also just filled with joy. So much joy happens as we practice. And we can, that joy is this uncovering of this basic goodness inside ourselves that we can then express in the world as bodhisattvas or whatever you want to call yourself. And you don't have, it doesn't have to be social action. For some of us, that's not where we're drawn at all. It could be a variety of things. You could serve through your art or your writing or the work that you do or your, you know, whatever it is can be a vehicle of service in a sense. Or it could just be by being a really good person. That we can make a difference in the world by being a really good person. This is a poem from um, Alison Litterman uh, called At the Corner Store. It was a new old man behind the counter, skinny, brown, and eager. 
He greeted me like a long-lost daughter, as if we both came from the same world, someplace warmer and more gracious than this cold city. I was thirsty and alone, sick at heart, grief-soiled, and his face lit up as if I were his prodigal daughter returning, coming back to the freezer bins in front of the register, which were still and always filled with the same old cable car ice cream sandwiches and cheap frozen greens, back to the knobs of beef and packages of hot dogs, these familiar shelves strung with potato chips and corn chips, stacked up beer boxes, and that immortal Jim Beam. I lumbered to the case and bought my precious bottled water, and he returned my change, beaming, as if I were the bright new buds on the just-bursting open cherry trees, as if I were everything beautiful struggling to grow. And he was blessing me as he handed me my dime. Over the dirty counter in the plastic tub of red licorice whips, this old man who didn't speak English beamed out love to me in the iron week after my mother's death, so that when I emerged from his store, my whole cockeyed life, what a beautiful failure, glowed gold like a sunset after rain. Frustrated city dogs were yelping in their yards, mad with passion behind chain-link fences, and in the driveway of a peeling paint house, a woman and a girl danced to contagious reggae. Praise Allah, Jah, the Buddha, Kuan Yin, Jesus, Mary, and even jealous old Jehovah. For the eyes, hands of the divine are everywhere. Such a great poem, huh? So how do we take this practice and manifest it in the world, whatever your, pra- whatever your way is, with joy, with um, ease, with grace? And that's really kind of the koan, the unsolvable mystery that you're left with as you get ready, as you prepare to leave this retreat. Now, some of us know very clearly what our path is. You know, some of us are born with this sense of, I know what I want to be when I grow up, and we just do it. And then there are others who go through shifts and changes, and they say people change jobs all the time. You know, every seven years or something, people change jobs. And um, for those of you who don't know, what is my service? This is a very real and important question. Or may not be my service, it may be what is my work, what's my next step in life. And so there's something about really making space the best you can for whatever will emerge. And using time, using a period, letting there be a period of visioning, of opening, of learning to listen to the inner voices that guide you, of listening to your dreams, of drawing, of writing, of anything that's going to help invoke this next step, because the conscious mind can sometimes figure it out, but oftentimes it comes from someplace else. And it's a difficult thing because it involves a kind of trust. I know that when I was, I was going through a career transition and I gave myself, I mean, I was lucky. I was, at that point, I was training as a teacher and I was doing some writing and so forth, but I really didn't know what, how my life was going to manifest. And so I just said, okay, it's open space. Let's see. I'll try a little this. I'll try that. 
but also I'll explore what is it I need to do? What am I drawn to? What excite me, excites me? And I remember I would ha draw these maps and I'd hang them up all over like one wall in my house and it was images and ideas and pictures and visions and I just let it sit there and cook, you know, like cook inside me and cook and bubble and brew and I'd get more information and dreams would come and I would talk to someone wise and that would help me and there was just, it was a process that I really let be a process. And after a while, what became clear was the vision of what I wanted to do, but I had no idea of what it was going to look like. And so then there was a period of time where I could actually articulate and say, articulate and say what I wanted in life at this point in my life, but then I didn't know how it would come. And the surprising thing was it came utterly unlike what I imagined, completely surprised me, but it met the kind of criteria of my vision in a sense. So, um, so for instance, I moved to Los Angeles. I know many of you are from Los Angeles. I never dreamed I would live in Los Angeles, <laughs> but um, it's great, you know, for those of you who live here and love that. Um, so trusting the process and allowing that kind of cooking piece to happen. And as we practice, we get more and more tuned into our intuition, to our body knowing, to this truth that comes forward, as you've been seeing, as you've watched these insights bubble up over this last couple weeks. So just to add a little piece before I tell my Halloween story, this is um, just to say that it works the other way too. When we take care of the world, we take care of ourselves. And so we can work to address the structures that can lead to us living a healthier, more supported, more loving, easier, better lives. Imagine if we um, lived in a society where we didn't have to worry about um, healthcare or financial strains, or um, for some people who worry about where the next meal is going to come from. Imagine if we lived in a just and equitable world. We can fight for that. We can work from it from a place of equanimity and compassion. We can work for it. And as we change the structures in society, we change ourselves. And we provide a place for other people to live a life of ease and love and well-being and um, more time for play and enjoyment and spiritual life and community and celebration. We can address the larger structural issues of oppression and racism and classism and other ways groups of people are systematically devalued and end up internalizing hatred and the lack of self-love. There's so much work to do. And the work that we do also builds those qualities. If we work out in the world consciously, we build the qualities of patience and equanimity and determination and wisdom and compassion. They come from that work as well. There's a, an organization I really like that's related to all of this. It's called um, TakeBackYourTime.com. 
I think that's what it is. Take back your no no take back your time day dot com. Sorry. So they have this day. We missed it. I think you were meditating. October twenty fourth. And what it is, Take Back Your Time is a major U.S. Canadian initiative to challenge the epidemic of overwork, overscheduling, and time famine. I love that word, time famine. That now threatens our health, our families, our relationships, our commitments, I'm sorry, our communities and our environments. And so they work to support a free time agenda, which includes paid childbirth leave for all parents, at least one week of paid sick leave for workers, annual vacation, make election day a holiday. <laughs> there you go. Um, a limit on compulsory overtime work. Ways that just structural changes that invite a healthier, more sane way of living. So we can imagine a world where we're not running around in a frenzy, but we're actually... Um, living utterly connected to what we're doing here. And that sense of separation that what we're doing here and what we're doing out in the world, it's, it's completely connected. And it doesn't just, we don't go back, to, you know, some people complain, they sit on retreat, they feel so spacious and happy and con- connected to themselves, and then three or four days later, they're back in the world and they're just back in the old, same old, same old. Imagine allowing this to grow and permeate and lead a life where it was encouraged. We were on call. What if everybody's job, you had to take a week of retreat? Imagine, compulsory retreat taking. (laughs) Whatever, you're a particular version of it. Anyway, so so I would like to read this story to finish off. And this is a story about, as far as I can tell, it's it's about a bodhisattva. And this bodhisattva is a very unusual bodhisattva. But you can tell he's dedicated to a life of compassion and kindness and care. And, um, and his particular form of service is so uniquely his own, so incredibly uniquely his own. And somehow it's connected to Halloween, and you'll see what I mean. And um, I, it was on This American Life about two weeks ago, so you may have heard it. <laughs> it's... Um, it's it's about a guy who likes to dress up as Superman. So here's, here's the story told by this man who um, contacted him. I was in the Las Vegas airport when I noticed this guy dressed like Superman. I'm talking red boots, blue spandex leggings, a yellow, uh, yellow belt, a big S on his chest, and of course, a big red cape. I was struck by how authentic the outfit was. He had no baggage, no keys, nothing. He looked calm and happy and sort of out of place. (laughs) I figured he was a performer from the casinos. He ended up on my plane, but there was a lot more excitement on my plane than usual. At one point, the pilot made an announcement. Superman's hotel called. He left his Pokemon pajamas in the room. Where do we send them? Everyone cracked up, but Superman seemed relaxed and happy. People passed him and said things like, Hey, Superman, what do you need a plane for? (laughs) His answers were short and polite. He seemed pretty normal for a guy in a Superman costume. 
so the guy who's writing this decided to track him down and um, made, you know, went to visit him. His real name is Mark Weisenbeck, and he lives in Auburn, Washington, outside of Seattle. So they did in this interview, and he said, how often do you dress up? Every weekend I get a chance to, I put it on, I'll do it. If not too much is going on, I do it also. I can't wait to put it on, because the costume, because as soon as someone sees you, their day is different. They got a story to tell, something they'll always remember. I guarantee that pilot's still talking about it. <laughs> His two-bedroom apartment is filled with Superman memorabilia. Dishes, sheets, mouse pad. He has five different costumes hanging side by side. <laughs> and eight Batman masks. <laughs> it feels like a locker room for superheroes. He started dressing like Superman five years ago when his wife died in a car accident. He said, it hit me. She doesn't have any more tomorrows, so I better start getting as much out of today as I can. What would help me do it? I enjoy wearing that costume and I just decided I'd go out in public with it. I couldn't wait to have other people see it. It's been a kick ever since. The first time in public, I went out dressed up and put fuel in my car, and nearby and a nearby car went nuts. I knew right then I'm onto something. This is gonna be fun. <laughs> when they honk at you, they're saying, there's Superman, there's Superman, there's Superman. And the neat thing is, they won't stop honking until you give them eye contact. And they know you're looking at them. And they're looking at you and the whole cycle is complete. And everyone's having a good time. He taught himself how to sew. At one point it said he, um, he got George Clooney's costume from a Batman movie, but he decided, he wears Batman in the winter because <laughs> it's warmer, because it's a lot of rubber. <laughs> and he doesn't like to cover it up, you know. So um, he said, um, he, he then decided he was going to learn to sew because he wanted it to be really, really primo and perfect. So he paid all this attention to detail because he felt like if it wasn't perfect, he'd be letting people down. You have to look authentic, he said, otherwise you're a joke. <laughs> Okay. Um, he has this sense that his wife is sort of looking on and helping him out with this process, which is interesting. Usually, um, he goes to bars in the costume at night, and so the author asks to go with him. So he suits up, and they get in the car, and in the car he notices there's Superman license plates, Superman dangling from the rearview mirror, Superman floor mats, Superman logo everywhere. And he has this, um, he actually, the floor mat is there so he won't scuff his boots. So where would Superman go on a Monday night, this guy asked. Apparently the town that they live in is so small that the only um, claim to fame is that you drive through it to get to the nearest Ikea from Seattle. Okay, so he was nervous, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, hold on. Um, so they, went, they ended up in a sports bar, and the author, the guy who was following him, was a little nervous because it was sort of half full. Most of the people were in their 20s. Mark, the Superman guy, was a little concerned because usually he attract, people who grew up with Superman like him better, you know, because they don't know. If you're in your 20s, you didn't really grow up with Superman, so 40s and above, he said. So he stands near the pool table. The author is overprotected and scared. Maybe they need to know the story of Mark's wife dying. <laughs> I wanted them to like him. 
He was enjoying himself. He looks good. He's in good shape. He was sipping his Diet Coke, Coke and fielding questions from all these people in the bar. And they're all going, hey, man of steel, man of steel. But on the way out, there's a group of guys blocking the exit. And one of them come up, comes up to him and says, are you the weirdo wearing tights? And the guy stood chest to chest with him. Mark said no one's ever tried to beat him up. This might be the first time, I thought. But before I knew it, the guy was giving Mark a hug. Not a full-blown hug, and I'm not gay side hug that guys give each other. Still, it was a pretty big change from someone who was wanting to beat him up 30 seconds earlier. He was saying, dude, it takes a lot of guts to wear that, and that sucks about your wife. When people talk to him like this, Mark chucks it up to the costume. I think they like him in spite of the costume. He's out there all vulnerable with no defenses and no aggressions, and he's excited to be in spandex leggings and a superhero cape. It helps that it doesn't seem to notice when people laugh at the costume. He assumes that everyone is into it, and it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. He acts like they're into it, and so he acts, he, he acts like they're into it, and so he acts nice. And when someone acts so nice, it wins them over. So that's your Halloween costume story. Um, and why don't we just sit for a moment? May we all be like great Bodhisattva Superman. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.